head of the New York Stock Exchange welcomes you and they give a little brief history about what the exchange is about and what's about to happen and then they take you down to the floor. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Life in Accounting. We are a podcast production of whereaccountantsgo.com. I'm Mark Goldman, a CPA and your host for this podcast. Well, as you know, we strive each week to bring you guests that highlight all the different career paths that are available to us accountants. And I noticed not long ago that we had highlighted several very unique and different paths, but hadn't had many stories from those that have taken the more traditional route of investing in a career in industry. So I wanted to correct that. Our guest for today came out of that effort and Adriana has a great story. To tell. Adriana Carpenter joined us for this episode and her career actually spans industry and then going into a big four firm and then back into some rather large and fast growing industry organizations as well. She tells the story better than I can but part of her journey recently took her to the floor of the New York Stock Exchange where she was part of the team that rang the bell to open trading that day. It's a pretty cool story. Make sure you don't fast forward through that part. You certainly don't want to miss it. Another thing you certainly don't want to miss is the content on our own website at www.whereaccountantsgo.com. If you haven't visited that lately, please do check it out. We have all our podcasts, of course. We have a blog. We have several books and publications that will help you in your career. And we have some tools for employers as well. In fact, we just recently launched a new job board, totally free to employers at www.whereaccountantsgo.com, but only for accounting jobs, of course. Well, with that, let's go ahead and get started with today's interview. Here's Adriana Carpenter. Hello, Adriana. Welcome to the show. Hi, Mark. Thanks so much for having me. No problem. This is going to be fun. Well, for our audience, we have Adriana Carpenter, the Chief accounting officer with Ping Identity in Colorado with us today. And I came across Adriana because I put out a call to some of our previous guests for another management level executive in industry to to bring on the show because I really feel like we haven't highlighted that career path enough, or at least to my satisfaction, because I really like to highlight that path as well. And I have to say, I, I really hit the proverbial jackpot here because Adriana was recommended by a former guest, and in our pre-show conversation, it was extremely obvious that there's a great story here to share, so I'm really looking forward to this. Adriana, I know we've got a lot of ground to cover because we're going to talk about both public and industry, but I want to make sure we talk about the early days because I know there's a wonderful story there as well. What initially caused you to pursue accounting as a possible career in the first place? Well, growing up, I always loved business. For whatever reason, I would, back when I was a young child, I would literally sit at my dad's desk and play with the calculator and pretend to be conducting business. So I knew that when I went to college, I was going to major in some sort of business degree. I initially started out with an accounting degree or majoring in accounting, but took a internship with IBM and ended up in the accounts payable department for this internship. And being a young, I would say maybe naive student, I inferred that processing AP was accounting. And so when I came back to college, 
my junior year, I immediately then switched majors to finance. I found both classes and both majors very interesting. But having looked at the AP route, I said, oh, well, I don't really want to do accounting. I'm going to go do finance. But I graduated in 1992, which was a very difficult job market at the time. And I did a lot of interviewing. I interviewed with banks, you know, just like a normal commercial bank, investment banking firms. I interviewed with a lot of different corporations and ultimately chose to go the path of becoming a financial analyst over at Texas Instruments and their defense group at the time. So I supported some engineers and basically did all the financial modeling for them straight out of school and quickly realized that that just wasn't what I wanted to do. I didn't find it that interesting. And I really thought, hey, I really want to do more financial reporting. I want to understand how the financials get prepared and the information that investors are using. I want to create that information. And TI was willing to pay for my graduate degree. So I, within three months of graduating from college, I was working full time and went back to school at night to get my graduate degree with a concentration in accounting to have enough hours to sit for the CPA. So that whole process took about four years, at which time I was, I spent two years as a financial analyst with Texas Instruments. And then I moved to an accounting manager role for a joint venture between Texas Instruments and Lockheed Martin, what is today now Lockheed Martin. But then the minute I graduated with my degree and got my CPA, I decided to go the only route I thought that was really appropriate at the time, which was public accounting. I thought, well, if I'm going to be an accountant, I really want to go and I want to work for, I think back then it might have been the big eight, (laughs) might have been the big six, I'm not sure. But at that time, so I actually in a sense, four years in, started my career over. I basically took a cut in title. I started over as a brand new associate in the audit practice at PwC, took a pay cut and started over in public accounting. And so I would say as I went through my career, I sort of blindly went into a few things, not really even understanding what I was doing. When I started with PwC, I started out in the real estate group thinking that sounded interesting and very quickly realized that real estate was not for me. I mean, if you've ever worked with a real estate company, it's made up typically of a lot of partnerships. There's a lot of legal entity structures you have to really understand in order to properly audit those types of entities. And none of that resonated with me. I just found it extremely boring, confusing. I didn't like it at all. And that was the first time I think in my career where I started to really understand that the industry you work in truly matters because it drives the types of topics and issues that you're going to deal with. So, you know, I considered going into the financial area, but again, if you're working with financial services, you're doing a lot of fund accounting. You're basically auditing the valuations of funds and there's a lot of intangible stuff that you're working with. And I didn't particularly like that. I did some inventories for some commercial companies and also didn't (laughs) like taking inventories on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. That was no fun. So I was like, okay, well, I can't have anything with like actual inventory. I have to go count. That's no good. So I ultimately settled on technology and I went back to my roots with Texas Instruments in the defense group and I started auditing aerospace and defense companies. So with that move into technology and aerospace and defense, I actually 
spent a couple of years in Dallas with the PwC office, and then I moved to Boston and worked in that technology practice during the whole tech boom and bust. You know, I had a choice at the time to either go San Jose or Boston. San Jose was sort of the number one area of expansion in the technology field, but Boston was the second hottest market at the time. So I chose to go to the East Coast and I spent really some formative years in Boston. I was a brand new manager when I moved there and being in Boston and part of the technology practice there was, and, and just part of the you know technology boom was just truly astounding. This was the late 90s into the early 2000s. And I learned so much about really making decisions, you know, researching, making tough calls, being able to present a position and defend those positions. I just learned a lot about being put in tough situations and creating your own voice to be heard. If you've ever worked on the East Coast, it's a completely different feel than working in Texas. It feels like the pace is two times faster. Everyone talks louder. <laughs> it's just very more abrupt, not in a negative way, in a very good way. People are very straightforward. And I would say one of the other key things that I really learned when I was in Boston was how to speak plainly and how to be direct. In some cases, I would say maybe sometimes I was a little too direct, but it's a great skill set to have. So I spent five years in Boston and I was also in Boston when Arthur Anderson went under as a result of Enron. We went through the process of bidding on Arthur Anderson clients. I mean, it was a total free-for-all. And the Arthur Anderson office within all the different cities, everyone was trying to win over those auditors and those teams and bring them on to their firm. And so going through that event was I mean, I just look back on that and I just remember how crazy it was. Nobody could believe it happened. We brought on the technology team from Arthur Anderson into our practice and, you know, working with those individuals who went through it on the Arthur Anderson side, I mean, it's pretty life-changing. It was interesting just to work through or to see how the fall of Arthur Anderson just impacted not just the, the accounting industry, but the actual individuals. I wrapped up my stint in Boston in 2004 and moved back to Dallas with PwC and spent a couple more years in Dallas before I decided to move to Denver. I actually stayed employed with PwC in Dallas, lived in Denver, but then took a role on the Dell account in Austin, Texas, and commuted for two years. At that point in my career, I had Unfortunately or fortunately, I don't know which way you want to look at it, <laughs> I had worked on several public company restatements. I had worked on several fraud investigations. So 10A investigations where the board is basically commissioning an independent investigation for some particular matter. And so it becomes almost like a special skill set when you know how to do and navigate restatements and 10A investigations. And at that time, Dell had just kicked off its own 10A investigation and restatement activity. And so I went down there to help lead that effort. And through that process, it was pretty intense. You mentioned that one of your previous guests 
referred me, that previous guest, she and I worked together on that Dell engagement. But we had, I want to say at one point, about 250 auditors worldwide that we were trying to coordinate this entire sort of investigation, restatement activity. And it was a pretty intense period of time. And at the same time as all of that, I was going through the partner process with PwC. I ultimately, you know, we wrapped up the restatement process with Dell. And around the same time, I found out that I was cut from that partner process. And really, it was because I was living in Denver. I was employed by PwC in Dallas, and I was working in Austin. So if you think about how the big four works, a lot of making partner is about having a business case. And what are you bringing to the partnership? It's not just how good you are. That's great. There's lots of talented people at the firms. It's not only what kind of talent do you bring, but what business do you bring with you? And how are you going to build and continue to maintain a book of business? And with the dynamic I had put myself in, I really had no business case. So my choice really at that stage of my career was to either stay with PwC and move to make partner or leave. So ultimately, I chose to leave, which was an an extremely difficult decision for me because back when I started with PwC, I mean, I was 100% convinced that I was going to be with the firm for life and I was going to make partners. So coming off of that decision was tough, but ultimately, you know, the right thing for me What was phenomenal is that when I made the decision to leave, the partners within PwC literally helped me find my next job. So they identified opportunities within their networks of positions that were open, and I ultimately took a position of the global controller at T-Tech, which is a global public company headquartered here in Denver. And I was their global controller for about five and a half years. So similarly, at the time that I was leaving PwC, T-Tech was also going through a restatement and a 10A investigation. So it was right (laughs) up my alley. So I helped them finish that up and then ultimately help rebuild the entire accounting or global accounting organization. So while I was with T-Tech, I managed upwards of 120 people all over the world. I helped start up shared service centers in the Philippines and Argentina and Mexico. I had accounting teams in the Middle East, in Dubai, in Turkey, down in Latin America, in Argentina, Brazil, and then throughout other parts of the world. And I would say at Teletech, I learned a couple of things that were pretty critical and formative going forward. One was just the importance of developing a great team, you know, having to rely on a bunch of teams throughout the world. And as a public company, it's really important that those teams that are decentralized from you are doing all the policies and practicing all the controls and making you aware of issues on a timely basis. That doesn't just happen because the rule is there. It happens because you've created a relationship with your team. They trust you to be able to tell you, hey, we think there's a problem down here or we have a question. So I really learned the importance of building those great teams and those relationships across your teams. Secondly, I'd say it was a really fun time 
to work for a company that was expanding. We, you know, did a lot of acquisitions. So I just learned a ton about operating globally. While I had audited a lot of companies that had global operations, it was a totally different thing to actually work within a company that was expanding into new regions and new territories. So it was really great. And then I guess to bring us up to current day, you know, about six years ago, I made the decision to leave Teletech and come over to Ping Identity. And at that time, Ping Identity was a VC-backed company, so a venture company-backed company. And I was hired with the intent to go public. So I was hired on as the chief accounting officer. And in the private world, a CAO is not really different than a controller. I mean, essentially, you manage the back office. But in the public world, a CAO is one of the signers of the financial statements. And so it was a big deal to leave Teletech as the controller where I was not a signer of public financials and to be hired at Ping as the CAO in the event that we would go public then at that time I would become a signer of the financials. So I came on board. There was a lot to do to mature the company from really a more entrepreneurial startup company to be really what you would call a public ready company. And three years into that journey, we actually were sold to a private equity firm, Vista Equity Partners. And at that time, most PE firms don't take their companies public. Nine times out of 10, a PE firm is going to buy you, they're going to own you for a brief period of time, three to five years, and then they're going to sell you. And so when we were acquired by Vista Equity Partners, who also, by the way, has never taken a company public, I thought for sure, oh, my dream is over. We're never going to go public here. That's okay. I'll stick around and see what happens in the PE world. I had never worked on the PE side and for a PE firm, so it was definitely different. PE firms do take companies public, even though that's not normally the exit strategy. It should be one of the available exit strategies. And Vista had never taken a company public. So they've been around for a while, and they've owned over 400 companies. And ultimately, Vista decided that they needed to have in their playbook the ability to take a company public. Because when they're going out, there's a lot of PE dollars out there that are competing for the same types of companies. And they need to be able to also compete against other PE firms like a KKR, who does take companies public, a Tomo Bravo. And so they needed that in their, you know, on their resume, if you will. And so they actually worked with Ping. And literally, I guess it was one month ago today that we took Ping public. And I was standing on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, or really not on the floor. We were standing up in the podium, you know, above the floor, ringing the bell to take Ping Identity public. That's got to be a phenomenal experience. It was truly unbelievable. It really was a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience. I would say now you can no longer drive up to the front of the New York Stock Exchange. You know, we had to take a car from where we were to get to the NYSE that morning, and they drop you off just a small, like a half a block from the front of the New York Stock Exchange. So we get out of the car, we walk up this kind of like alleyway almost, if you will, and you hang a left. And as you turn the corner, there's the front of the New York Stock Exchange and they had this massive banner. It was, I don't know, four stories tall. It literally covered the top half of the NYSE building. And it's this massive ping logo 
on the side of the New York Stock Exchange. And better yet, even for me, was it's the side that has the young girl that's standing there looking at the front of the New York Stock Exchange. So to take in that view, it really took your breath away. And it was like, oh my gosh, this is really happening. I can't believe it. You know, and it was just an incredible experience. Before you get up to the podium, they take you up into a ballroom where you kind of hang out because you arrive at the New York Stock Exchange about 7 a.m. And then you're sort of hanging out. And then about 9 a.m., they introduce the head of the New York Stock Exchange, welcomes you, and they give a little brief history about what the exchange is about and what's about to happen. And then they take you down to the floor. And as you walk onto the floor, you have to walk through the entire trading floor to get to the back where the podium is. And you have, you know, there's the sound stages of all the different business shows where the podium is, CNBC's Squawk Box sound stage is right in front of the podium. So you're walking by, Squawk Box is going on live, and you're kind of pinching yourself like, I can't believe this is real. And then they shuttle you up this little narrow staircase where you go up to the top, you cram onto the podium, it's teeny tiny. They only allow 14 people up there. And so... You know, we had seven Vista individuals and then seven Ping individuals. And then we brought about 70 employees, partners, and customers with us. And so those individuals were right down on the floor in front of the Squawk Box soundstage cheering us on, you know. And then our CEO and the co-founder of Vista, Robert Smith, and our CEO, Andre Durant, they press a button actually to ring the bell. It's not actually bells you're ringing. You're literally pressing a button. And so, you know, they basically say, okay, at 9.29 and 30 seconds, everyone, you guys all start cheering. And then Andre and Robert at 9.29 and, and 50 seconds, you need to press the button to start the bells ringing. And you need to hold the button down for the full 10 seconds all the way through until 9.30. If you don't hold the button down for 10 seconds, you don't ring the bell for 10 seconds, the traders will boo you because apparently it's a tradition that you have to ring the bell, the opening bell for at least 10 seconds. And so all of a sudden, you know, there's a big countdown clock in front of you. All of a sudden it's 9.29 and 30 seconds, we start cheering and then it turns 9.29, 50 seconds, the bells start clanging and then boom, and then it's over and you're like, whoa, that was, it was crazy. It was really super neat. But then there's two other things that happen as you walk down the stairs to get back down to the trading floor, the walls are white panels and they hand you a, a Sharpie and everyone that's on the podium gets to tag the wall. So you oh, get to wow. write your name and date and whatever else you want to put on the wall. So everybody tags the wall and then you go onto the trading floor and you move over to behind where the sound stage is. There's an area where the market maker is and the market maker starts working with the traders to actually figure out what to open Pink's stock at. Because while we opened trading for the floor, our stock had not started trading yet. And it took about another hour and a half. We didn't start trading Pink's stock until about 11 a.m. Eastern time. So it's about an hour and a half where the traders are accumulating volumes of trade and they're trying to narrow in on what that opening price will be. We IPO'd at $15 and went out, opened up at 1875 and then close the day slightly over 20. But it was pretty amazing. And so you basically hang out on the trading floor until you open trading. And at that point, when they open trading, then there's an actual bell, like a gold bell, that you use the, the New York Stock Exchange mallet you've probably seen. And Andre and Robert went and rang the bell to open trading. So they took the mallet and literally were ringing the bell. So it was pretty incredible. That's too cool. 
<laughs> yeah, it, it was. Wow. I, that is exactly how I feel. It was too wow. cool for words. <laughs> wow. I am curious. I mean, this is such a novice question, but I, I'm just curious with you know technology and everything. Now, I mean, when, when you're standing up there and y'all are holding down the button and you're looking, I mean, are there hundreds of traders out there, or is it really just a pretty quiet room that they make noisy mm, for the? It, <laughs> yeah, it's not like the old days where you see a bunch of traders, you know, like 20 or 30 of them clustered. Okay. There's a lot of desks, almost like stand-up desks with little almost cubby holes where each of the investment houses sort of have their pod area. And there's a handful of traders in each of those areas. So the floor is really big. So there probably is easily 100 people that are working on the floor, but it's not like there's a crowd of people standing together. You'll see maybe half a dozen traders sort of walking in a particular area. All the traders have tablets and they have headphones in or like a earpiece. And they're literally those investors, those traders are actively calling their investors. They're writing down trades on their tablet. They can share information discreetly with only their investors. They can share information across traders if they want, you know, certain select information with other traders. In our case, the traders were making decisions when to share orders with the market maker. So there is absolutely active traders on the floor and there's definitely dozens of them out there, but I wouldn't say it's like the old days where you sort of see everybody standing in a crowd and yelling and shouting. It's not that. Okay. <laughs> because they are using technology, you know what I mean? And so my understanding, I did not go to the NASDAQ, but when we were talking with a lot of the traders and others at the NYSE, they were explaining NASDAQ is all electronic. They actually don't have any human traders on the floor. So NYSE is different in that they actually still do have the human traders actually actively trading on the floor. Pretty interesting. And the traders were great while we're standing there for an hour and a half. Like they're coming over. They're showing us their tablets. They're explaining, oh, I just got off the phone with this investor. They're wanting to buy or they're wanting to sell. Here's the price range. This is the volume. You're trying to get to about a 10% volume total of total number of orders before you open trading. So we went out at 12.5 million shares. That was our IPO. And so the market makers waiting for a volume of orders of call it, you know, 1.2, 1.3, 1.5 million before. And that's basically to make sure that the price of the stock is settled or it's not as volatile when you open trading because you have a sufficient volume of trades ready to go, basically. Okay. You know, we're talking about ping identity so much at this point going public. We probably should tell the audience what Ping Identity does. <laughs> so, <laughs> we are, at their computer. so we do identity and access management. So if you think about it this way, we secure workforce, customer, partner identities so that those individuals can access whatever data they want from whatever they want securely. So if you're an employee and you go and you need to go access five different applications, our software is what's basically allowing you to access those applications without having to put in a user ID and password for every single one of them. Some people okay. think of it as single sign-on. That's a small component of what we do, but that's like the most obvious, but it gets a lot more complicated than that. But the gist of it is we're securing your identity as opposed to in the old days you secured, you put firewalls around all your data, right? But now most of your, a lot of your data is in the cloud. You have cloud apps, you have 
people using devices that aren't just in an office. They're using their phone and iPad. They're you know, using some public portal. And so how do you know that when you're logging in, you're the person you say you are? And our software and hosted services basically provide the security around your identity to make sure that we only allow in you and not somebody else. Okay. After you do all this at the stock exchange, is there an after party or are you guys just There is, yes. At the food truck, and we got to get back to work. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, there is. So once you leave the trading floor, we all sort of went around and did some things around New York for the rest of the day, and then you come back to the trading floor at six o'clock when everything's closed out. The traders are all gone, and they actually throw a party on the floor of the exchange for you. So yes, we got to go back there at night and then hang out and yeah, have drinks on the trading floor. And great food. They had really great food, too. So, yeah, it was a lot of fun. (laughs) Okay. Okay. I wasn't sure if there's so much work to do. It's it's like we've got to do these other things. Or I would think that, you know, there's some... Well, what's funny is from an accounting perspective, we did have a lot of work still to do because (laughs) when you file your original prospectus, when we're actually IPOing, we only have our price range out there. And so we figure out the actual price the night before you IPO. So we IPO'd on a Thursday. So Wednesday night, we figured out the price. Then Thursday, we IPO'd. We started actively trading the stock. And then we submitted our final prospectus to the SEC on Friday. So we had to go update the document and get everything, get the final price put in there and drew up all the pro formas and everything else. And then the actual IPO doesn't close. In other words, the shares don't get issued and the funds don't get sent to the company until the following Tuesday. So it's like a three-day close after the fact. We were also then getting everybody geared up for the close. And, you know, the auditors have to issue a bring down on their comfort letter that goes to the underwriters the day of close. And we got to make sure that the funds are going to the right place. We were going to pay down debt with our proceeds. So we needed to arrange with the bank to to repay the debt. So there was a lot going on still in the background. A lot of it we had sort of prepped in advance, knowing that we wanted to celebrate a little. We didn't want to be working the whole time. (laughs) So we did a lot of stuff to make it where it wasn't, you know, there was some effort, but there wasn't a ton of effort. But there's still a lot happening the following, call it even like four to five days after the actual ringing of the bell you're still pretty busy. (laughs) Okay. Okay. You know, one of the things I've noticed about your career and and I really appreciate is when you join a new organization, you really invest yourself there and you take the opportunity to learn new things. And I mean, you spend a good amount of time with the organization and, you know, growing them and growing you. You really do invest yourself. Well, I think part of the reason I do that is I find it a lot more rewarding. I feel like you just sort of start to get your stride a couple of years in. It takes one to two years to really, really understand an organization and understand what the purpose is, what the strategy is, what the vision is, and then to build the right team to go execute against that vision also takes about that long. So it's not until particularly at this level, right? As I come in, I'm looking at, all right, what do I have to rebuild throughout my career? Every time I've come on board to a big team, it's been to 
almost rebuild it. There has been some issue and I'm coming in to help turn the corner. And so it just takes time. And my goal always is to, I want to come in, I want to build a world-class team, I want to have a world-class environment, I want to make it a fun place to work. Work is hard. It's hard to make it fun. What makes it fun is when you have super talented, bright people, everyone's motivated, and we're all aligned around a similar vision and a similar path to success, if you will, as you think about the goals of the organization. And if you can embrace that, then it really does make it fun. You know, with Ping, I had a big decision to make when we were acquired by Vista. I mean, I literally met with the CEO. I met, you know, with various parties to talk about, do I want to sign up for round two? Because it really was a round two. I mean, once you get sold to PE, you're literally sort of we're starting over from scratch, but it is, there's a new owner in town and let's talk about what the vision and the strategy is. And did I want to be a part of that, of what, what we wanted to build? And ultimately I decided, yeah, I mean, I, my work wasn't done yet. And I was really eager to sign up for another tour, if you will. I don't know when this tour is going to end, <laughs> but yeah, I find it much more rewarding to do a little more investing and staying a little bit longer. But I also would say one of my weaknesses early on in my career was not knowing when to really be honest with myself on whether that career path was working for me. And sometimes I put myself in very difficult working situations. And I would say maybe in hindsight, I should have removed myself from that situation sooner. But I'm always motivated by challenge. And it's like a bull with a red flag. <laughs> Once someone <laughs> waves a challenge in my face, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm totally going to conquer that. Right. And so I found it very difficult, particularly early on in my career to know when to say when. You know, as I look back on my career with PwC, I mean, that was, it was really difficult for me to leave. I don't even know that I would have done it had I not had a partner help me literally look myself in the mirror and say, is this really what I want? Because I had to make some really tough decisions if I wanted to be a partner. And I'm like, oh, yeah, sure, I'll move wherever. And, and you know, and this partner's like, well, that's not what you've been saying. That's not why you moved to Denver. That's not why what you've been saying you want to do with your life holistically. And so are you sure this is what you want to do? And it took me a while to just say, you know what, I have to let go of this goal of making partner. Because when I step back and I look at my life holistically, that goal doesn't fit anymore with what I want my whole life to be. And that was hard for me to learn. I'm much better at it now. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying that because actually I was thinking earlier that you had done everything you could to do the right thing in public accounting you know take whatever assignment moving around commuting and that frankly it sort of backfired maybe (laughs) you know but I didn't realize there was that soul searching at the end so that makes a lot of sense and I would say it was just the opposite it was like in public accounting one of the beautiful things about it is there's so much opportunity. And so every opportunity that came up, I wanted to do it. I'm like, oh my gosh, that sounds awesome. That sounds super hard. 
or that's going to be really challenging. I'm going to learn a ton. I want to go do that. You know, and then I'd finish up with whatever assignment it was. And then I'd hear about another one like, wow, that's really cool. It's going to be really tough, but I'm going to go do that. And then I'm going to go do this. And And I could not put up the proper boundaries between my work life and my personal life when I was with PwC. That's not the firm's fault. That's my own. That was my own thing. I didn't know how to. And I got to, I created such a bad environment for my life holistically that I didn't even recognize. And it wasn't until another partner sat me down. Let me tell you, when he sat me down, I did not want to hear what he had to say. I was so furious that I didn't make partner that year. I was furious that he's telling me I should evaluate something differently. And I literally, I left. I went to Hawaii. I went to Maui. I had some friends that lived there. I went and spent some time there. And I did what you just said. I did some soul searching. I was like, oh my gosh, this guy's totally right. And I came back. I'm like, you know what? I'm ready to go. And I mean, it was the best decision. When I left PwC, I desperately wanted to get married. I wanted to have a family, but I had like nothing. I hadn't really had a serious boyfriend in a long time. And I left there. Yes, I went to a challenging environment at Teletech. I mean, they also were going through a restatement and a you know, and an internal investigation and all that stuff, but it was just different. It's almost like I only owned my thing and I didn't have all the competing pressures of trying to get the most billable hours or, you know, getting on the next best thing. And I was able to focus more on me, on myself holistically. And, you know, a year after that, I met my husband. A year after that, I got married. About a year and a half after that, I had my first child. And another year and a half after that, I had my second And then after my second child, that's when I left Teletech because I realized with the global nature of Teletech and it being public and, you know, there's a lot of demands in a role like mine. I was traveling a lot. I was working a lot of weird hours. I mean, having calls at midnight because I had teams in the Middle East, there was just a lot of competing demands. And this opportunity with Ping came up and I thought, okay, well, that's a big risk. I'm going to literally leave a bunch of money on the table with a public company, but I'm going to try this other role that could have a lot of upside. But boy, if it fizzles out, you know, maybe it wasn't the best move financially, but I'm going to get a ton of flexibility. I want to spend more time. I have two toddlers, like a baby and a toddler at home. Like, and so I made the decision with my husband. We were like, this is sounds the best path forward. And it's been a home run. I mean, this has been... I would say career-wise, it's been phenomenal because not only, yes, I got to take a company public, but I do so much more at Ping. I manage you know, payroll, tax, treasury, accounting, procurement. So for a while, I did some HR oversight, and I've been so much more involved with all of the operations because I did come on when it was such a small company and have grown it. And so I've literally been involved and seen so much more about how business makes decisions and grows and matures. So being honest with myself about what I needed holistically, not just through work, actually has led to some really, really wonderful things from a work perspective. Beautiful. That is a good lesson. Thank you. I end every podcast with the same three questions, and and we've been on the line for a while, and I want to be respectful of, of your schedule. Also, so we, we probably better get to those. Yeah. You've 
done a great job telling us about your career and really hitting all the high points and bringing out the lessons. I'm curious, from a career perspective, what's personally been your proudest moment? I have to say building this team here at Ping. I've always wanted to build what I call, I think I mentioned it earlier, this world-class team. It's so hard to find all of the right people to sit in all the right seats and have kind of a cohesive fabric and feel that runs through the team. And this is the first time in my career where I can truly say my team is phenomenal. I mean, we have just the highest caliber of people and that translates into the team has a ton of fun. One of the things that I love most in the morning, I think somebody asked me the other day, what motivates you at work? And I'm like, oh my gosh, coming in in the morning and watching the team, just chatting with one another and sharing with one another and the compassion and the caring that goes across the team. I mean, don't get me wrong, man, when things are tough, people get a little testy too. That doesn't, it's not like this is all roses, but that you can't just create that out of thin air. It is something that you have to hire and recruit people that are going to have that compassion when they come to work. They're going to have that drive where they want to just deliver every day A-plus work, and then they're going to feed off one another, right? That It's contagious. I have to say it's taken over 20 years to do something like this, and I just love it, and I don't want it to end really awesome. Thank you. That's a great answer because the easy answer is, well, ringing the bell, you know, on the stock exchange. <laughs> that also is cool too. <laughs> <laughs> that would be the coolest moment. <laughs> but it was 30 <laughs> seconds, 10 seconds really. And it's not what fills your heart and makes you feel good. I totally agree. Totally agree. Well, second question, and you may have already given us some pieces of this, I'm not sure, but just in case there's something else on your mind, tell us about a lesson that you learned the hard way. And and frankly, the more details you can share, the better, because it helps us learn. So in my role, pretty much what I'm doing day in and day out is making decisions. I'm constantly having to make decisions on, maybe it's a technical accounting call, what position we're going to take, maybe it's a process issue, maybe it's something that has to do with strategically what direction we're going to head as a business and how do I see us supporting that, what does the infrastructure look like to support that decision. And, you know, a lot of times they're judgment calls. So you don't have all the facts or you basically say, okay, I have this much information, I'm going to assess the risk with making this judgment call, I think the risk is low and so I'm going to go ahead and make the call. And I made a decision to, we had just finished recasting our financials under 606 and we were under a tight deadline to file some financial information and we had to go back and recast our taxes, our tax provision as a result of the 606 recast. And we literally had like a week to do it in. And while we had already done the full year provision, we had to go back and do it quarterly. And we didn't really, we had never really done quarter tax provisions. And for anyone who's done a tax provision, a quarterly tax provision is a totally different process than a make, doing a provision at year end. So we jammed in this quarterly 
tax provision process in a week and did a real high level cursory review and basically were like, it's good. Let's just go with it. How wrong could it be? And what I failed to really think about was our company was close to break even. So even a small error in this quarterly return, because also I guess just to step back, we already knew the annual amount. So all you're doing is taking, if the annual amount's 10, you've got to break that up into quarterly amounts. But the components, the quarters have to equal to 10. So we already knew the end answer. We just had to break it up and push it back into the quarters. And so I figured, well, how wrong could it be? Well, it turns out it was wrong. And it was wrong by like 150% of whatever our target was. So we find this out later after we had already issued our financial statements and we end up having a material weakness and we have to, you know, go back and recast and restate these quarterly financials. I mean, that's a massive blow. I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe, I mean, I've gone in and corrected and resolved and remediated all kinds of material weaknesses and help people restate, but I've never been the one to make the call that actually caused a restatement. And granted, it wasn't that big of a deal. It was just the tax line. It was a quarter. It wasn't a year-end audited number, but it was still bad. And I would say two lessons from that. One is the minute we knew that it was wrong, it wasn't about whose fault is it? Who made this call? My tax manager was beating himself up over it. And I'm like, it wasn't just your fault. Like We all reviewed it. We all made this call and this decision to do it in a really short period of time. So it's not about who's to blame at the moment. It's about how do we recover from this? Okay, so we have this problem. How do we resolve it? And so we had, when we identified the error, we literally had only a couple of weeks until we needed to fix it. And so it was all about having to work with the auditors to figure out how do we correct it and how do we make sure we don't miss this next deadline that's coming up because that's equally as important. And so literally like every day we're turning different positions. We're basically revising and iterating the position of how this gets corrected with the auditors so that we could make this deadline. So I would say, look, I started this whole explanation with every day I'm up here, I'm I'm constantly making these decisions and these judgment calls. You are never going to get them all right. You just won't. That's life. So the lesson isn't just don't make the mistake like think through it better or, you know, get more people to review it or whatever. You you won't always have that luxury. The lesson is, boy, the minute you find out that you've made the mistake, you got to fail, you got to fail fast, and then you got to recover. It's all in the recovery. And how are you going to remember this error? Are you going to remember the error that took everything down? Are you going to remember like, oh yeah, we had that blip in the road, but we recovered because we did X, Y, and Z after the fact. So to me, the biggest lesson, and I'll never forget, something happened early on in my career at PwC, and I just thought, oh, this partner's going to you know, rip me to pieces. And the partner was like, I'm not even worried about that. Like, We need to focus on how do we fix it? And you know, that stayed with me all the way through to modern day. When you make a mistake, you just got to focus on how do you recover and correct it as fast as you can. And come clean as fast as you can, because the faster you come clean, the faster you can correct it, the faster you can move on. 
I appreciate you sharing a real mistake because <laughs> it's easy on that question to go with the generality. And yeah, I think the audience and myself even, you know, we just all learn more from a true example where there was some pain. <laughs> and I know there, there was pain. pain that <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, last question, and then we'll go ahead and close it down. What's the best piece of advice that you have ever received? You have to surround yourself with people who are smarter than you. Full stop. The better the team you have, the better you are. You heard this story or the saying that says, you know, all boats rise together. It's true. The smarter your team is, the smarter you are. I recognized early on there are definitely parts of what I manage that I don't do well. I'm not a good process person. I don't like dealing with process, socks, controls. Yes, I understand them, but I'm not good at going in and doing the detailed work or you know, documenting them and all that. Hire to your weaknesses. Hire people that are smarter than you. It will just improve your life massively. And when you have all of these smart, talented people on your team, they all recognize that as well, and it causes you to have such a, a more positive environment and workplace. And so it literally, like that one, that one piece of advice, always hire people smarter than you, has such a ripple effect throughout everything, not just how well you can execute your position, but the morale and the culture within your team also benefits tremendously. Wow. I can see that you are a great leader. It, it doesn't surprise me at all, all the success you've had. Oh, um, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It's, it's not, inevitable. I will say the other thing is leading people is not easy. It's a lot of work. You know, one thing I didn't focus on or didn't mention that I just want to say before we end is, you know, I said I'd make a lot of decisions every day. The other big thing that I do all the time is I'm constantly thinking about what's the makeup of my team and where is my team going to be 12 months out, you know, 6, 12, 18 months, 24 months. And when I'm hiring people, I'm talking to them about, okay, well, I'm hiring you for this position. Let's just say it's a revenue manager position. Revenue is very specialized. It's a very specific role. And so the question I'm, I have for the individual is, are you wanting to just stay in revenue your whole career or is this a stepping stone to get to something else? And this is just an example, right? And maybe this individual says, no, 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 I, this is just a stepping stone, but I think it's really important. I understand this part of the business. It's like, okay, then you shouldn't be here, you know, two to three years max in this position. And then, you know, regardless of whether you're a revenue manager or a revenue senior manager, you get promoted along the way, whatever, you shouldn't be in revenue for longer than two to three years. You need to be then moving on to the next thing. So then I'm literally you know, I might hire that individual, but a year in, we're talking about where are you going to be in the next one to two years? Another year in where it's like, okay, where are you going to be now? You know, what's your next step? And I'm actively talking to these individuals about where are you going next? Is it somewhere within accounting? Do I have a position for you within the company? If it's not within accounting, is it within some other functional group? Is it outside the company? But let's continue to talk about what's your next stepping stone to get to where you want to be. And whether it's on my team, on somebody else's team, outside of the company, which I always hate, but it can be a reality, particularly in a small company like a ping, even in larger companies, there just might not be the opportunity at the right time. 
then by all means, we should be enabling those individuals to go to that next thing, whatever that next thing is. And to me, one of the biggest responsibilities as a leader is to constantly be thinking about your people. Where do they need to be going from a career perspective? What opportunities are you going to provide for them? And how are you going to help them? And you don't have all the answers. And a lot of times people don't even know what they want to do. And so it doesn't mean that it's going to be perfect, but you should have transparency, open dialogue about this constantly. Like it's not a one-time thing. And then your managers need to be talking to their team members. So it's super, super important. When I get ready to do a career planning episode, you just make a list. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) People have to bite back for sure. (laughs) Sounds good. Happy to do it. (laughs) Well, thank you again for the time. The audience doesn't know this, but we worked a little bit to get this scheduled because you are a busy lady. So so (laughs) Yeah, I know. I do apologize for rescheduling multiple times, but I'm glad we finally made it happen. Yes, I am too. Thank you so much. I really do appreciate you sharing your time. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. Well, that was my interview with Adriana Carpenter. And I don't know about you, but some of the takeaways that I personally have from this interview are the value of really taking the time to invest yourself into your job and how that can pay off if you're at the right place. And secondly, And this really applies to everybody, the importance of who you surround yourself with. She was mentioning it from the standpoint of who you bring onto your team as a manager, but I think it applies to individuals in their own careers as well. You need to be in a place where you can thrive. Well, there really was a lot of truth in the insights that Adriana shared with us today, and I very much appreciated her taking the time out for this. If you found value in this episode for yourself, please come to our website and check out some of our other episodes. You can find them at www.whereaccountantsgo.com. And one publication that may interest you is Hiring for Accounting. We have a 45-page comprehensive ebook that covers everything you need to know about hiring for accounting positions. You can find it on our website at www.whereaccountantsgo.com. Well, thank you again for joining us. I'm Mark Goldman, your host for Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast, and we will see you next week. There's more to come.